0: Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. Powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And today, y'all, we have a special, special guest. I know all of our guests are special, but today... We have an extra special guest, none other than the Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. For those who are uninitiated, the Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil is a dynamic speaker, author, professor, and reconciliation thought leader. Her mission is to inspire, equip, and empower the next generation of Christian leaders to be practitioners of of reconciliation. She's an international trailblazer leading individuals, communities and organizations to biblical reconciliation. She was featured as one of the 50 most influential women to watch by Christianity Today in 2012 and let me tell you she is also a phenomenal author. She's the author of Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0, A Credible Witness: Reflections on Power, Evangelism and Race and The Heart Behind Racial The Heart of Racial Justice: How Soul Change Leads to Social Change. And her newest book, which we talk about today on the podcast, is called Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. It is out, and you need to go get it. Trust me when I say you need to read this book. For those who are wondering, what is Becoming Brave about? Well, Becoming Brave offers a distinctly Christian framework for addressing systemic injustice, challenges Christians to be everyday activists who become brave enough to break the silence, and work with others to dismantle systems of injustice and inequality. Jamar Tisby and I had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. McNeil, and it was a clarifying, powerful, prophetic time. I hope that you enjoy it. Listening to Black women is always a joy and a treat, and she was not a disappointment in any way, shape, or form. So let's get right into it. There's so much that we're going to get into today, and I don't want to take another second away from our guest our special guest the reverend dr brenda salter mcneil right here on pass the mic
1: this episode is brought to you in part by baker publishing group most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters space takers binge watchers or game players We want to be difference makers, but maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code 12022. That's O-N-E 2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping.
0: Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, thank you so much for joining us here on Pastor Mike.
2: It's my pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, I just want to do proper protocol, and we've already done your intro, so you'll hear all the great, glowing things that we have to say about you. But I just want to give honor to whom honor is due. When it comes to reconciliation and justice in the church, there are very few names that should come before yours. Uh, so thank you for how you have paved the way for so many of us in this conversation. You were having it long before many of us were. And so I just wanna give you honor and deference in that regard.
2: I appreciate that. You know, Sometimes we pick things and other times things pick us. So Mm -hmm. I don't take credit Mm -hmm. for this. It feels almost as if this was the call of God that I didn't know was on my life. And I, uh, through a series of steps, uh, of obedience found myself in this calling. So I'm grateful for my longevity as well.
0: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the first things I want to talk to you about is this book is is called Becoming Brave, and it's certainly not the first book that you've written. But would it be accurate in saying that this is a book you have spent your whole life preparing to write?
2: Yeah, that's a beautiful way to say it. Yeah, it really is true of of me that this is truly my uh, journey, my evolution, my transformation, my conviction. And sometimes, you know, the the, the theme of Sankofa, you have to look back to move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, this is a lived testimony. This is not something I thought about. This is something I've lived. But I think that finding a way to language it, took work. And it took years to literally retrace my steps and unpack exactly what happened and what was the significance of those turning points.
0: You know, we haven't had you on the podcast before. So it's interesting. A lot of the people who we have on the podcast, um, especially some who are closer to our age or in the millennial Gen Z uh, generations, we typically have the same origin story. It's Trayvon Martin, it's Mike Brown, it's One of these more recent protests it's the 2016 presidential election, and that spurs us into activism, into justice, into asking the question, have we focused on the wrong things as a church in the American context? But I want to give space to you to share a little bit about what, what led you to this point, because you were in a completely different generation than us. It was a different time in the world. And so what was that moment for you? I'm very curious what sparked that in your heart.
2: Yeah, I can still think of it and remember it as if it was yesterday. So to know what happened, I've got to start from the beginning. I became a Christian when I was in college. That's a very important thing to note. Mm -hmm. And so being a college student who is now grappling with my uh, vocational call, what, what am I going to college to become, right? I become a Christian. And so now who does God want me to be? And and how does one grow in their faith on a college campus? You know, all of us can probably, who've been to college can think through what it was like to be in college and the party days and all that kind of stuff. My first year was very much around social and, 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 and intellectual kind of pursuits. And now I'm a Christian in my sophomore year and I've got to figure out how do you live for Jesus? And that's when I stumbled into campus ministries. Most of those campus ministries were white evangelical organizations, Campus, Cru- Cru- campus Crusade, Inner Varsity, Chi Alpha, uh, Baptist Student Union—you know those kinds of things, right? So, as an African American woman, young student coming to mm-hmm. Christ, I found myself in white evangelical space, having grown up in the Black Pentecostal church. So now this is a, this is a switch, right? Okay, okay, I like that. <laughs> I got a fellow Pentecostal. Okay, now so feel this is comfortable, right? This is a switch, and I'm and I'm trying to make a sense of this new thing called discipleship. Because because, of course, we disciple people in our small church context. We just didn't call it that, right? And so now I'm in Bible studies, et cetera, et cetera. And so long story short, I became very aware that this discipleship process was laced with a worldview that was very much comfortable for white dominant culture and uncomfortable for those of us who came from other cultural backgrounds, Right. Mm-hmm. Fast forward about seven to eight years later, I am now a seminarian and I have been given the opportunity to do my uh, contextual education uh, internship at a, at a college, Occidental College. And at Occidental College, I step onto campus into the chapel where I'm now going to do my internship. And I see 200 college students who are meeting consistently to study the Bible, come to worship, et cetera. And of those 200 people, only two were people of color. And then I know there it is. In that moment, I felt like I had stepped into a time warp that so much had changed except this issue of race in the church. And it bothered me and it made me ask the question, what is it about racial I- I inequities? What is it about uh, racial injustice? What is it about racism that seems to be so difficult for the church to make progress on? Mm. And I'll say this. I've learned that uh, more than finding the right answer, it is compelling to find the right question because the wrong question will lead to the wrong answer. But the right question can lead you to your call. That mm-hmm. question, what's wrong with the church when it comes to the issue of race, became what I did not understand at the time, a lifelong calling.
0: Well, wow, Dr. McNeil, that is such a testimony and such a moment. Uh, Can you share with us, because I think it's always important for those of us who are interacting and engaging in this moment to to have this reality, to also know that we're not the first ones who face resistance. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about the resistance you faced over the decades? Because I know it had to have been intense I know it had to have been difficult for you to stay the course, and now you're still talking about these issues in 2020.
2: Yeah, I think that the resistance has morphed in how it's demonstrated. Uh, When I first got started, it was subtle. It was kind of like if you do it more like this versus that. If you're uh, biblical, because you know we 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 want to hear this message, right? But and watch for the but. Always watch for the but. We want to hear this, but you know, um, we had someone and he or she. Seem so angry, and so you know, uh, if you if if you do it in a way that doesn't feel as if it's uh, uh, accusatory, uh, if you. If you avoid uh, controversial social political issues, because see, those are divisive and it's as if, you know, people are trying to bring their agenda. So if you show us that this is biblical. So the resistance was a very interesting kind of we're 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 for it, but on our terms. And if you do it on our terms. Oh gosh will like this will be great right and and because as a speaker there is a a amount of respect that one must bring to the the speaking Preaching moment. We respect our audience and it's not to bleed on the sheep or to bring our own per- personal agendas, right? We are, and we are wise enough to know how to do our jobs well and to do it with respect for the people to whom we're speaking. However, as time went on, I began noticing that those requests to do it on our terms literally was a smokescreen to conflate diversity, i.e. having a diverse speaker, a person of color, a woman, etc., to to grace our stage, to be a part of our conference, to come speak at our church. That was being confused with true reconciliation. So people were basically being able to say, well, we. Had Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, so then we're good. And I began starting to push against that. And when when I began to push against that conflation of diversity and reconciliation, and being very clear that they're not the same, you have not done the work of reconciliation because you had a black woman come speak at your conference. That's when people began saying things to me like this. And this is a quote from a white man who somehow must have heard me speak someplace. He said this on my Facebook page. I don't know who he is. He looked to be based upon his picture in his, in his mid forties or so. And he said this, and I quote, we liked you better when you just quoted Bible verses. My goodness. Mm. Mm -hmm.
3: Wow. Shut up and dribble.
2: Now I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh, exactly. So I deleted him from my Facebook page because not in my house, but I think he spoke the the resistance of what you speak that will listen to you. We can we can allow your prophetic voice to speak as long as you do it in a way that does not raise the issues we don't want to grapple with. As long as you stay in the Bible and don't make it relevant to social political issues, then we're good. As soon as you start doing that, then we like you better when you just quoted Bible
3: so I I would you've already sort of touched on this and maybe just teasing it out a little bit. I think our word choice on these topics really matters. And so in the subtitle of becoming brave, you said finding the courage to pursue racial justice. And 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 I use that same language too. So I wonder if you would Talk a little bit about your choice of that language of racial justice versus diversity or racial reconciliation or or any number of terms you could have used.
2: Absolutely. Because so often that conflation of diversity and reconciliation is being made in the white evangelical church circles and not just white evangelical church circles. I think that somehow the message of Dr. King to call us to, quote unquote, the beloved community kind of somehow got watered down. How that happened, because Dr. King stood for justice. Dr. King stood for economic equality. You know, those kinds of things, voting rights, those were justice issues, right? But somehow the beloved community got got watered down, diluted to becoming, making friends cross-culturally. And so I am very intentional to say that I am not talking about a kumbaya party. I am not talking about washing feet and and making public declarations that don't change anything and address the injustices that are causing people not to be able to reach their full God-given potential. I, I have come to the conclusion that we have to say that with great clarity because people in their own desire to not feel guilty or to feel as if they're trying to do something needs to feel as if their attempt to make friends had needs to be recognized as enough. And though one making friends is not a bad thing, it is not the conclusion of the work. And if we think that making a friend from another culture, speaking Spanish or eating with chopsticks has done it, then we, those of us who who are calling people to racial justice, have not done our job well enough. Ooh.
3: So if you're listening to this, you need to go ahead and pause, run that back, sit with it a little bit. Oh, that's so great!
0: Go buy the book. Too, you just need to go ahead and buy <laughs> go the book. buy
3: that Board book. It um, yeah. Yes, and speaking of the book, it's it's so brilliantly written because you've done it concisely but powerfully. And one of the ways you demonstrate that is, is centering um, much of the narrative around the story of Esther who is often tokenized, but rarely given the nuanced treatment that you give her. And so what about Esther do you believe is, is, is appropriate and timely for this cultural moment?
2: Yeah, I think that and this is the first time I've said this so I'm really glad you asked this question. I have always liked uh, the book of Esther. Yeah. It's just a very compelling story, right? But I remember hearing a white uh pastor uh who will remain unnamed preach about Esther and and he referred to her as having used her feminine charm to somehow seduce the king and get her way into, you know, this this place of 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 this position of being I I think I've heard that, Dr. McNeil. Uh I think (laughs) I know (laughs) know what you're talking about. And I thought to my, see, that's why we need the the multiple (laughs) voices and perspectives. That's why diversity does matter. Because when I look at that text, I do not see a woman who was a floozy who somehow kind of wormed her way and used her feminine charms and batted her eyelashes and put on her lipstick and got this man to like her. This is like the children, the young girls who were taken away from their parents and and, and, by the Boko Haram, and the parents were begging Mm. them, bring back our girls. This is that story. And so it became, I think, a a kind of irritant that made me work on Esther. I felt like this woman's narrative is a prototype of the type of young emerging leader that I see coming up right now who may not see themselves as worthy of leadership, who may not see themselves as qualified for leadership, who may have had some drama in their personal lives, but that does not limit our ability to be used by God in significant ways. So that's the story I wanted to tell. That's the narrative I saw from a black woman's perspective through that narrative of Esther. And it became a part of my life for five years as I wrote that book and lived into that story in a really, really deep and compelling way. The, wow!
3: There's a particular aspect of that I would love for you to um, tease out for us as well. It's this question of assimilation. And to what extent, if any, are we to sort of go along to get along or code switch? And I think you have a really interesting discussion of The subversiveness of Esther within that situation.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot in that small book, is it not? I'm just, you know, yeah. the Bible is, is, is for me, it's a life changing, transformative, uh, book. It, it, it really has made me who I am today. And so when I think about Esther and I look again through the lens of a black woman who grew up with parents who wanted me, like many of the people listening to this podcast, wanted me to succeed in life. And so all of of our parents gave us what i what, what sociologists and psychologists call racial socialization messages you know um, she my mom would tell us you know d- 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 my, watch your manners don't don't speak like that you know don't say what You know, say, you know, there was say, yes, ma'am. It was a way that she wanted us to behave in public, you know, and of course I was a child, so I didn't think of it as assimilation, but my mom knew, and she used to say this all the time. You can't be as good as you have to be better than. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to, but I'm wondering what messages we all received from our parents, be we Latino children, Asian American children, African American children. Our parents understood like Mordecai understood about Esther. When you get into this world, you may not be judged by the content of your character, but by the color of your skin. And I have got to do the best I can to give you the skills to be able to be in dominant culture and, and and, and be accepted there to thrive there to make it through college there to get a job and, and and excel in that world so i don't think they saw us as selling out i think they knew that the world was propped up toward white dominant culture and they were trying to give us a fighting chance in it but i will say that there is a bit of losing oneself when you do learn to do things on dominant cultures terms mm-hmm. and and at some point, that's what Esther has got to grapple with. Mordecai tells her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Now, it's interesting that he says that that's the thing you must hide from people because I think he too knew that her ethnic identity would limit her opportunities to succeed. But at some point, he has to say to her, Your assimilation, your ability to be bilingual and speak more than one language, your ability to change your name from Hadassah to Esther, all of that is for your security and your safety, your ability to thrive. But when other people's lives are on the line, that strategy will no longer Mm -hmm. work. Mm.
0: Yeah, you know, it's fascinating that you talk about this and how you said at the beginning that there are some callings that you choose and then others that choose you. A lot of us, I think in this moment, feel as though this has been thrust upon us. Um, I think Jamar and I can even identify with this idea of just feeling as though we have no other choice but to speak, we have no other choice but to identify and but to stand in solidarity with our people across ethnically even. And as you think about that, the compelling nature to speak, can you talk about the burden that that brings? Because I think for many of us, there's a heaviness emotionally, there's a heaviness mentally, there's a heaviness culturally, and yes, a heaviness spiritually as well. And we're trying to figure out how we navigate that while remaining committed to this work.
2: Yeah, that's exactly why this book is called Becoming Brave. And let's contextualize it. We just came through one of the most divisive elections in the history of our country. And the emboldened white supremacist um, uh, hostility is something I've never seen in my life. And so I now feel, and I have felt for some time, the palpable sense of courage that it requires to speak up and to name uh, our truth in the midst of this type of environment, right? So I think that um, we find ourselves in these places of power and um, we have been educated. Many of us have had this privilege of, of going further than our parents had gone prior to us. And I'm grateful that thanks be to god right um and so now we have to find ourselves in those positions where we're challenged to to speak up to address these issues and we know we are very aware just like esther that speaking truth to power comes with a cost you know i want to use for an example um uh when i was a college student and tom skinner spoke uh at urbana in the in the 70s yes, right yes. and It was right, one of the most powerful, um, Convicting, prophetic, urgent calls to the church to reckon with race and racial injustice. And, uh, many people remember that as a watershed moment in the evangelical mission, missiological world. But other people don't know. And we don't talk about the fact that after that message, white evangelicals dropped Tom Skinner Mm -hmm. like a hot potato. Mm -hmm. He was not invited to speak at Conferences anymore. His radio program on Moody uh, Bible Radio was canceled. Uh, that's what the crap cost is, that's the price. You see, when we start stepping up and speaking unapologetically the truth about racial justice and the impact of our complicity, come on, somebody. <laughs> that's your title, right? Your, your complicity, that, that complicity with it in the church, that's when people, even though they don't, uh, Physically, perhaps physically show their hostility, there's a way that they withdraw their financial support, their, their invitations that undergird our ability to continue to speak in places where conferences and such are the places where our books are sold, et cetera, et cetera. It's a way to bankrupt a person and smile all the time. And when you say you basically did this to this person, you, what? What did we do? Because it's never direct enough to be uh, pointed out to as the thing that that you have done to someone, but the, impact of it is that their ministry is never quite the same. So to your question, it literally takes courage to know that you are in these places that you do have to speak truth to power in your academic institutions, in your denominational settings, knowing that the majority of the, the those who have power in majority culture may probably see you as a person who is no longer, um, a team player, no longer a quote unquote good fit, and that has financial and mm-hmm. and uh, vocational implications. That,
3: yes, preach. Uh, we 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 live that daily in a in a small way at the witness as we're trying to do things like raise money, but not be muzzled in our approach to racial justice, uh, because typically the ones who have the resources to fund you well are the ones who are not taking this approach to, to race and racial justice that you're talking about. I have um, a question about courage. And I'm wondering, does courage look different? What are the similarities or differences between people groups? Is courage different for white people? Or does it look different for white people than it does for black people and other people of color? Uh, can you Explain maybe some of the differences or similarities.
2: Sure, absolutely. I I have come to believe, and I say this as I do trainings and consulting, that it is it's not true that all people need to do the same work. And I'll tell you, um, I was challenged around that, and it has been a really good thing. Many younger people are saying, hey, I don't even want to use the word reconciliation anymore. I want to replace that with reparations, because reconciliation just seems to continue to be this notion of everybody coming to the table and working together. And it never quite says that something has been broken and someone has broke it and we need to figure out who has to do what to fix it, right? And so I have come to learn this and I say it now all the time, reparations is not a new thing. In Isaiah, God says, and you shall be, the people of God shall be the repairers of the breach, the restorers of streets to live in. And I believe that that notion of repairing what is broken is a biblical concept. And the fact that we have watered down reconciliation, not to include that, is our fault, not the not the lack of the potency of the word. So reconciliation includes repairing, and that means that different communities have different work. Amen. That means that for Black people or people who have gone through racial trauma, we've got to do that work. We have got to. Ask ask ourselves, focus so much on trying to get white people to hear us and to understand that Black Lives Matter when we could literally be having conversations with with Afro-Haitians and Afro-Caribbean people Mm. and Afro-Brazilian people. We could begin to talk, right? We know what it is to have people's children taken from them. That's the slave narrative that children were taken from their parents. So when we hear about children being separated from their parents at the border, that could be an alliance between African-American people and Latino people. Amen. Right. That could be specific work where this concept of whiteness, just like a race is a social construct. Whiteness is a a social construct. And we did not create that as black people. White people created this concept called whiteness. And so to use James Baldwin, he said, I am not your Negro, Therefore, you have got to ask yourself, why did you need one? That's white people's work. White people, I think, have got to do the brave and courageous work of deconstructing this concept called whiteness. Tanahisi Coates has said, those who believe themselves to be white, where did that come from? Where did that, why did that come from? forth to replace being Irish or Polish or German or Italian or French. Why was white the new construct? And we both know, Jamar, that that came historically from someplace Mm -hmm. and that has to be deconstructed by white people in order for them to heal and be able to move forward in this conversation toward the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And anybody who thinks that I have some hobby horse that I'm trying to promote, I love God. I, period. I love God. Tyler and I talked about being Pentecostal and I still am. I am. I love God. And this is I do it with this much passion because I believe that God's kingdom must come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what our job is as the people of God. We're supposed to be microcosms of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why I care so much. That's why I get so strongly uh, passionate about it. it. It's motivated by deep love for God and God's people for me.
0: Wow. Well, Dr. McNeil, you mentioned something that's so profound and has so many different uh, applications and implications. And that's everyone doesn't need to do the same work. There's different work that needs to be done. And we're talking about this culturally, but I, I want to extend this a little bit to the gender aspect. And you're on the line with two black people Speak men, on it. And- <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, you are centering the narrative of Esther you talk a lot about women of color and Black women being at the center of this cause for justice. And I wanna ask uh, perhaps what's a provocative question, but I think something that maybe you can give us insight on generationally as well. Why does it seem like Black men, um, and we're putting ourselves in that that category as well, of course, why does it seem like Black men are going along with these kind of anemic attempts at reconciliation? Why is it not us taking the stand? It seems as though we benefit from this, you know, kind of very soft idea of what diversity is. And why have you seen, have you seen a shift in the way black men are, are treating these approaches? Uh, what have you seen in the past? What do you see now? I'm just going to throw that out there because I think it's important for us to, to hear yeah. your wisdom yeah. on that.
2: Yeah, I'm so, so appreciative of this question. And and I, I'm hoping that this might be the next thing that we start to grapple with as a people around this work of reconciliation. It's quite an insightful question. So there's many things I want to say, and I'm trying to figure out where I start. So let me begin here. Uh, Harriet Tubman uh, Of course we have had uh, A new movie that came out and Not, not long ago And I, I watched that movie And was compelled by it And then a dear friend Who I'm sure you know too Lisa Sharon Harper yeah. uh, Invited me to go on a pilgrimage With other women uh, uh, to, Around voting The women's suffrage uh, Just to retrace the steps Of Fannie Lou Hamer And other career Rageous women who had been at the forefront of justice and equality and, and the healing of our country. And, uh, what I did not know about Harriet Tubman was, um, we saw a film, the original Harriet Tubman film, and I'll show you where I'm going regarding your question in just a second. In this movie, uh, Cicely Tyson plays the character of Harriet Tubman. And there is one scene that I think is the key to the question that you've asked. The master has heard that Harriet has saved enough money over the years to buy her freedom, and that's her intent. And he is, is adamantly against her of getting free. So he comes down to her cabin on Sunday when she has put on her one Sunday go to meeting dress, right? She's a slave, so you can only imagine that it. it's like a burlap sap, but it's the best she's got. He comes into her cabin and she, he says, Where are you going, gal? And she said, I'm Going to church, massa, and he said, "Well, I need you to go into town with me." She looks sullen because this was the only day that she gets to be a part of the worship, and so she gets ready to take her dress off. And he says, "Oh no, you don't have to take that off. You can take that. We can wear that. Just meet me at the wagon." So he leaves her cabin. She uh, gets herself, puts her things down, and starts to walk down to where the the the, the uh, horses and the and the wagon should be. And there are no horses there. She stands there for a minute and on the lawn there is a lawn party going on with men and women, white men and women who are having a gay old time drinking, you know, little mint juleps, etc. There are a couple of slave men, enslaved men who are the butlers serving these people. And they're having this, and one is fiddling. You get the image, right? And so when she gets down to the wagon, the master sees her, but there are no horses there. And she looks perplexed. He walks down to where she's standing and she says to him, where's the horses, Massa? And he said, they're here, gal. And she she looks around like, what, where? And then he looks directly at her. And she looks back at him with a a, a a a look on her face that basically says, "You cannot be serious. You cannot mean." Jesus. And then he, Jesus, he puts the saddle on that woman. Mm. She said, "I can't pull this. I can't pull this. I can't pull this wagon, massa." Now he, all of the people from the party, women and men come down to the edge of the lawn where they're having this party and he looks like he will beat her to death if she doesn't start to pull the wagon. So she starts to pull this wagon and it is so heavy that she is now on her hands and knees crawling in the dirt. Watch this. Women and men are laughing at her as her dress is being shredded off of her body mm. from the weight of this wagon. And I watched that. And here's the answer to your question. I saw something about patriarchy and whiteness that absolutely has in. It ignited a fire in me about this issue around gender patriarchy and whiteness and what that has done to black men for white women standing there laughing and jeering as another woman is being treated like an animal. I looked at those white women and thought, how could you find this funny? How could you watch a woman being dehumanized by this man and you find that funny? Well, what whiteness says to white women is if you will side with us as white and whiteness, you will then have access to our power. Not because you're a man. You'll never be a man. Hence, you don't have voting rights. But we're your brother. We're your father. you're We're your son. And by your proximity to whiteness, you have access. Access to power. Ah, black men, those butlers standing on the on the lawn. Their silence, their complicity is: you will never be white, but because you are a male and not a female, if you stand with us, you'll never have the power we have, but you'll have some access to power because of our patriarchy. Jesus, wow, my
0: Jesus. God.
2: And so that's what I see playing out in history, from history to the present day. That white women side with white men because they have access to power through whiteness. I think black and brown men find themselves siding up to male patriarchal power they'll never be white but because of their maleness they have some access to power and that's what we're seeing in government today it's appalling to me but it's about the core concept that the the top of the heap is white males and there's a a gradation under that of who then has access to power and black women are not at the top of the heap (sighs) Wow. Selah.
3: So, and, and 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 the the other aspect of it too, of course, is that black women as neither white um they don't have that access on on either account. So they get the worst of That's it. That's
2: right. That's right. And that's why we voted for our lives. That's why white white, black women had to understand that we have to work to save communities. We have to work to keep our children safe. We have to work to get people who are destroying human lives out of office. And we stood up. Thanks be to God. I was so proud of how black women mobilized because I do believe both here and globally where women, particularly women of color, get tired of it. We are the ones who find ourselves bringing healing to communities. That's when we say, um, like the women in Liberia, we're going to have to pray the devil back to hell. We're just not going to have it. You're going to stop this. And we then use that. I don't know what instinct it is on the inside to save and to heal and to repair and to redeem. And it's not just for our children. We see everybody's children as our children, and there's something about the global impact of women who band together and use that force for good, that collaborative nature to bring healing to our land.
0: Ooh, pray the devil back to hell. My <laughs> Come goodness. on. Ooh. Ooh. That got me a Pentecostal shout. that I had to put it on mute. You couldn't hear that one because I would have blown the speakers out. My 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 go ahead, Jamar. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so uh my my uh Presbyterian spirit is, is jumping and shouting as well, but uh
0: no it's not, no, it's not.
3: <laughs> I'm deeply absorbed. I'm treasuring these things in my heart. How about that?
0: <laughs>
3: well, we do have a, 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 another question just to extend this. You, you mentioned this just a moment ago about black women um, and women of color, you know, basically voting for their survival um, and speak into our political situation right now i mean right now we're in the midst we're we're post-election but it doesn't really feel like that because you know the current president refuses to concede we're also seeing that white evangelicals voted at about the same rate for this current president um we're seeing so many black people and and other people of color really feeling on the brink having been affected by this pandemic so uh, disproportionately, and also understanding the stakes here, I just wonder if, 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 with your prophetic wisdom and spirit, you could just speak into this political moment. What are what are you seeing right now? What is our charge? What does it look like to be courageous in this political moment?
2: Yeah. Jamar, this is when I want to really thank you very much for the color of compromise. I uh, use yes. it in my class with college students and, uh, they, they look to me. Many white college students look to me and they say, Dr. Brenda, why didn't anybody ever tell us this before? And so the first answer I would say in, to your question about this election is that it is a very, very, very gut-wrenching, painful reality that this is not new. And that the revisionistic history that we somehow have turned a narrative about our united uh, commitment to uh, justice for all just ain't true. <laughs> Just as it has not been true. Mm-hmm. And it's not ever been true. Historically, the white church, now it breaks my heart literally because I drank the Kool-Aid and I kind of thought that this was a lack of understanding about the biblical narrative. But now I know that the Bible has been used consistently, historically to give justification for the same kind of racial hostility, bigotry, and divisiveness that we're seeing right yeah. now. This, This is not new. I wish it were new. I might have a little hope if I thought it was a new thing that came out of nowhere. This has been there and has always been there. And so I think that what we are seeing right now is our inability to grapple with our history, is our inability to tell the truth about who we really are and how the Bible has been used historically to do exactly what it's doing right now. It just keeps showing up in different forms, but it's the same old story with a new dress on. And I I need us to call a thing a thing. That's, that's the newest thing that's happened for me. I just have to name it and call it because there, it's just true that, uh, the, the, the justification for injustice has been a part of the white narrative, unfortunately, since slavery. We know that there was a slave Bible where certain voices were, verses were taken out. We know that, that the, the faith was used to, to condone slavery and to cause people to be submissive. We know that the Bible was used to colonize other people and to take land away. We know that that is just plain true. So when I see people doing voter suppression now and, and, and finding ways to justify injustice and to make police brutality okay, it breaks my heart. It causes me literally to lament more than I, I, I can express. I feel it all the time, but I have got to say with Everything in me that we're not going to turn this around until we grapple with our history and tell the truth about where we have been, where we have come from, and what we have never healed. Uh, we can't keep putting Band-Aids on it. So that's what I've come to believe. I've learned things like, th- this is true, you had to be a Christian to be in the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. Did you know that? Mm. It it wasn't like you happened to be a Christian and you got in the Ku Klux Klan. It was a prerequisite to be a Christian to get in it. Ooh. See? Say la. That's a moment. Yeah. That's yes, a moment. That yes, That's why is. the cross got burned. That's why it was a cross burning. It was, people thought that was an expression of their Christianity. And so people voting for Donald Trump, a person, 70 million people, that's a lot of people. That's half of our country Ooh, of who keep justifying it, who keep finding some scriptural gymnastic way to explain Cyrus and, and some kind of prophetic, uh, um, you know, um, uh, eschatological way to kind of explain what's going on, other than just saying this is wrong. Mm. Now, let me tell you something, and I'm going to be straight up hun- 100. I grew up, as I've already said, in a small black Pentecostal church, and them saints were judgmental. Let me tell you, you couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> lie, you couldn't <laughs> steal, you couldn't wear a short dress, you couldn't wear red lipstick, you couldn't just, you just couldn't drink, you couldn't smoke, and and they were judgmental all the time. And I saw them as extremely harsh, but let me tell you what I honored about them. And I do to this day, after I got over seeing how judgmental they were and I grew up, I appreciate the fact that they lived that life, this sanctified life. They lived it every day, all day. What they believed that the Bible said, they did their absolute best to embody that, right? Right and so i now know that what we're seeing a person who's been married uh what three times or uh, of public affairs five children three different women uh lying so much that it's become part and parcel with just what he does. Nobody's expecting that it's the truth anymore. Uh, uh, lawsuits from women around sexual impropriety, a, a, a wife who was on the front of a porn magazine, that kind of stuff would not have allowed a person to become a deacon in that little Pentecostal church that I was in. And all I'm trying to say is that the Christians that I knew, though they were judgmental, They were consistent about what they called a sanctified life, Mm. a life that was worthy of leadership. And it wasn't that they didn't forgive you. It wasn't that they didn't pray with you and saw you as a person who needed to grow in your faith, of course. And I have every right and and belief to believe that anybody, even this person that I've just referenced, has the ability to grow and, and learn, but that person would not have been put up in a position of leadership as an example to follow and that's my beef with the church mm. that the church did not pick and this is not about partisanship for me i have had many a republican uh, uh president and i probably will have another in the future the problem with me was the type of person that they chose my problem is the justification with the, the with the immorality the lack of truthfulness the lifestyle Everything about this person, the cussing in public, children not being able to watch, the president of the United States, that kind of stuff would not have been tolerated by the Christians I know. And what has happened as a result, it's caused Christianity to come in question. People don't want to hear people like Franklin Graham, and I don't blame them. They don't want to go to Liberty University, and I don't blame them because they've seen so much hypocrisy that if that's the God you know, and if that's the God you're trying to introduce me to, no thank you. And that's the problem we face right now. The credibility of the gospel is on the line based upon this election and how Christians have been complicit in it. Wow! Wow!
3: My (laughs) my my. We have
0: Doctor Brenda Scott McNeil.
2: Wow!
3: I feel like we've had three or four sermons in this podcast, and I mean that in the best possible way. So much to 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 think about and process. Let me let me ask you one more final question. We can hear it in your voice, and it's so justified the the righteous anger against about injustice. And the way I tell people is if you love God and you love holiness, you will be angry about injustice. And yet we are also people of hope. But I say that fully cognizant that sometimes hope is even weaponized against us in the sense of trying to rush us past the anger or rush us past the lamentation. Can you just speak to that tension, perhaps, if there is one, between this righteous anger and this eschatological hope that we have as followers of Jesus?
2: Yes. Just recently, I um, preached on the book of Jonah, and uh, it fell. The lot fell to me to preach on Jonah. It was a sermon series that our church was in, and um, it was life-changing for me. Because for the first time in my life, I knew what it felt like to want to go the opposite direction of what God calls you to do. Hmm. You know, uh, I, I, I think most of us who know the story of Jonah, we know that Jonah got, you know, eaten up by a, a whale or something like that. And, uh, we probably don't know much more. But now that I've looked at that, that, that text and really had to scrutinize it, it is, I think, a very, powerful call that God has put on the life of those of us who are called to reconciliation, that we are called to continue to preach, to pr- be prophetic to people that we kind of have a really strong sense of will not really hear it, will not repent and and do differently, will not be transformed and have been the oppressor of us in the process. And so why, God, are you calling me to go to Nineveh? Why do I have to be the one to try to keep preaching this message of hope and reconciliation to people who just won't do right, vote right, act right? <laughs> just yeah, why, yeah. right? Yeah. And- And I think I would just prefer to go the opposite direction, right? And God has a way of getting us back on track. Amen. So there is a divine element in here, somebody. There is is a God who intervenes in human affairs. We believe in the God of the resurrection. And so even if we want not to go, God has a way of getting us to say yes when we want to say no. And this is what I've come to believe about hope in the future. I believe that God is active in human affairs. I believe that God wants uh, to, to redeem and God wants to transform both the oppressed and the oppressor. I believe that reconciliation involves both. It is not just about the Jonas or the Jonias of society who are going to get the, the blessing and the grace of God. I believe those who we see as our opponents, as those who are oppressors, those who are in the dominant culture, who we feel are just misguided, wrong, and painfully uh, so, so much so that people's lives get destroyed as a result of the way they vote or or manage or mismanage the world around them. However, God is still God. And so this is the conclusion I've come to with Jonah. My job is to do what it is God called me to do. I believe like Dr. King, we come on on the human stage and we do that thing for which God has called us to do. And we leave the results up to God. Our job is to say when our time comes, did we do the part we were supposed to play? Did we say the thing we were supposed to say? Did we write what we were supposed to write? And when we can say, yes, Lord, I did that thing for which you called me to do, then King is right. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, this shall be mm. true. So I leave you with that because I believe that that's what keeps us going. God wins. Hallelujah. In the end, God wins. Whew. My, my,
0: my. What a way to end. Dr. Brenda Salter. Reverend Doctor. You have graced yes.
2: us. Yes, the
0: Reverend Doctor. Come on now. You have graced us with your presence and you you have so honored us with your insights and What can we do for you? How can the people follow you, support you? I hope everybody who was listening to this podcast has a copy of the book now. Uh, There shouldn't be any doubt left that you need a copy of the book. But what are some other ways that we can support and follow your work?
2: Yeah, I would I would covet the prayers of the righteous. Please do pray for me. Um, I'm human just like everybody else. I have good days and bad days like everybody else. So pray my strength in the Lord. And I really do mean that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I'm not hard to find. I'm on Instagram. And so my goal for those those platforms is to create communities where people find their tribe, that they find other people who want to be on this journey together. Because what I've come to discover is that we cannot do reconciliation in isolation. We must do it in community. Mm-hmm. So no matter where you are, I want you to know that my purpose on social media is to create that place where you find like-minded, like-spirited people who are reading and writing and doing the kinds of things you feel called to so that you feel like you're not alone alone in this work. So I would really love it if you join my crew, because uh, every day I try to say something worth hearing and worth listening to.
0: Dr. McNeil, thank you so much. Uh, We are indebted to you in so many different ways. And I wish you could see Jamar and I's text.
3: My way, goodness. Uh, we just praise <laughs> a We got to praise. We're not in person. <laughs> Otherwise, you would see us standing up, clapping, raising hands. And yes, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. but yes, listen, you have blessed us. You have blessed us. You have blessed us. And I thank you because I know this is hard earned wisdom, uh, wisdom gained through a lifetime of trials and uphill battle, but also joy in the Lord. So I can't wait to share it. And thank you for sharing with us.
2: Thank you, it's been my pleasure.